the reason I put together a PowerPoint is I didn't want them to project my face on the screen because Phil told me that once you turn 70 and they show your face on the screen, it's really humbling. <laughs> I, he might have said humiliating. <laughs> but how to enjoy the Trinity. I want to tell you why this is important. Because God wants you to. Because God paid an awful price in order for you to have a relationship with God. In that passage I just read, Jesus in his prayer said that this is eternal life. And you could, you could translate that, this is the purpose of eternal life. If you wanted to, that the wording there would allow that. This is the purpose of eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Can you imagine that God would do what he did in order for you to come to the place where you could know God and be known by God in the most intimate of relationships? And that you could live your life in such a way in relationship with him that you experience this on a daily basis throughout all of life. It's so wonderful to see old saints. Uh, we got a lot of old saints in my church too, but I know some of you a lot longer. Uh, there's Malcolm right there, and I've known him for many, many years, and he just keeps on looking the same. And um, walking with the Lord... I've never talked to anybody in my life that wants to talk about Jesus as much as Malcolm. It's wonderful. See, that's what we've been called to. And I'm going to say three things to you, and I, I, I want them to sink into your heart and for you to embrace them, memorize them, have them close at hand as you make disciples. Because those that you make disciples of, that, that is the purpose of the church is to make disciples who make disciples. So you are to be engaged in making disciples and as you are in the process of making disciples, you need, to, you need to pass on to them really key and wonderful truths that they need to embrace and understand and practice. And I'm going to give you three of them today. And that is how you get along with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I know that you all know that there is one God. And this one God involves three persons. There are three persons in the Godhead, and yet there is one God. And those three persons are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you relate to them in a very personal way. And so what we have is instructions in Scripture how we're to relate to the Father, Son, and Spirit. I'm going to go backwards. We're going to start with the Spirit. How has God called you to relate to the Spirit? And then how has God called you to relate to the Son? And how has God called you to relate to Him as Father? And these are the three things I'm going to say. Is we have to come to the place where we, as a way of life, as an intentional way of life, we walk in the Spirit. And we abide in Christ, and we present ourselves to the Father. Now, those three things are to be the intentional practices and manner of living that we have as believers. To walk in the Spirit, that's Galatians 6, as we abide in Christ, that's John 15, and as we present ourselves to the Father, that's Romans chapter 6. Those three things, they are crucial truths. I know you already know them. I know I'm not telling you anything new at all. I just want to pound this into your head. As Spurgeon said, pound it into their heads until it gets all the way down to their hearts. And it becomes a manner of life, that it becomes uh, something that if you were to say to one another, are you walking in the Spirit? Have you been walking in the Spirit this week? Now, that's not legalism. Walking in the Spirit is a glorious privilege. That's like, have you been, have you been enjoying your wife this week? Have you been loving your wife? I've been married for 51 years. I got married as a little kid. 
I was 19 years old. My wife was 17, almost 18, and and uh, we got married. And I was, I think, I just finished my sophomore year in college. I raced through two years of college, and then it took me six years to get to the last two because I was married. And after about three years, we started having children, and so it got a lot tougher to do. But I love my wife. I really love my wife. She's the most wonderful person I know. And uh, no, no one has been used like her in my life. And so I want to have the kind of relationship with her where I enjoy this relationship. The God of the universe has condescended to bring you into his life. Isn't that amazing? That he has brought you into his life, that there is a personal relationship that you have with this triune God. And so what we're going to do is look at these three things, and, and I just want you to keep in mind that Jesus said that the reason he gave you eternal life is so that you could know him personally. The word know there, when it's used of persons, is talking not about knowing about somebody, but knowing them. I know about President Obama. I know about, uh, you know, Willie Mays. I know about Larry Bonds. I know about a lot of people, but that's not like knowing them, is it? When you know someone, see, I know my wife. I love my wife. I have a relationship with her. And God has called us to know him, to know the triune God. And so he instructs us. And I want us first to turn to uh, Galatians chapter 6. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. This is a, this is a, a glorious uh, book. Uh, it's, it's one of the books where Paul is really angry. And he's angry because the gospel is being attacked. And these believers are succumbing to the distortion of the gospel. And so he is really on fire as he writes this book, and he wants to confront them over the fact that they are moving away from the true gospel to a, something that's not even the gospel at all. And so he's very animated. Now, walk in the Spirit, which is found in several places here, but if you look down in chapter 5, verse 16, it's a very well-known uh, passage. It should be a memory verse that, that resonates in your head. But I say, walk by the Spirit, or walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, the lust of the flesh. Now, this is a calling that we have. We're, we are called to walk in the Spirit. This is a part of your calling as a believer. You're called into relationship with God in such a way that you are called to be led by the Spirit. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. In other words, this is a characteristic of the sons of God. They are led by the Spirit. Now, all of us know that we've seen parents the way parents uh, discipline their children and lead their children. Sometimes their children are very reluctant. Uh, we had a memorial service not too long ago, and one of the guys that got up and spoke and was talking about his grandmother, had his little girl on his arm. He was holding her, and she talked more than he did. He could not, he could not bring her under control. And it was, it was humorous in one way, but it was kind of sad in another. And sometimes we're like that, aren't we, with God, with the Spirit. We are to be led by the Spirit. That's who we are. We are those who are led by the Spirit. That's one of the titles in Scripture of believers. Believers are those who are led by the Spirit. New Covenant believers, believers since the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Uh, if you've ever listened to Jim Cimbala, uh, he talks about this, that the very first description of believers in the Bible after the fall, after the fall, the first thing that are believers, the first thing believers are called is 
those who call upon the name of the Lord. It says, then men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Then after that, when it talks about the people of God, it always talks about those who call upon the name of the Lord. That's characteristic. In other words, that's like, what do believers do? Well, they call upon the name of the Lord. You know, a non-believer doesn't call upon the name of the Lord. Well, they, they may say, oh, God, in a, in a horrible situation. And they may even ask God to help them, but that's not the manner of life. The manner of life of the believers, we call upon the name of the Lord. And in here in, in Romans 8.14, it says that this is a characteristic of the sons of God. We call upon the, we, we follow the Spirit. We are led by the Spirit. Now, the, the reason that Paul does this in the context of Galatians, the reason he gets to this issue, is that there was a problem in Galatia. And he puts it this way. He says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having been born again by the Spirit, the Spirit is the one who opened your eyes to the gospel and brought you into the family of God. He transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear Son. Only the Spirit could do that, based upon the work of Christ. And he says, so you began with the Spirit. Now, through your own efforts, through the flesh, through your own efforts, you're going to come to maturity in Christ? That's what they were being told by these Judaizers. You've got to learn to keep the law, live under the law, follow the law. And Paul is saying, no, you must be led by the Spirit. You must walk in the Spirit. Now, the, the effects of this walking after the flesh, and maybe you've seen this at times in Christians' lives. I wouldn't even uh, dare to say that maybe you've experienced this but yourself, but you've seen believers go through this. <laughs> and that is... Uh, they lose their joy. In Galatians 4.15, these people, he says of them, what happened to all your joy? Why did you lose your joy? Why aren't you full of joy? I think joyless Christianity is a curse. I really believe that. I've experienced it. It is a curse. Experientially, in some ways, it's worse than being a non-Christian, being a, a joyless Christian who doesn't allow the truth of the gospel to penetrate their hearts on a daily basis. That's why you hear people talking about preaching the gospel to yourselves every day. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need to tell yourself the truth. You know, all of the epistles, uh, from Romans to Revelation, all of those epistles are, are the apostolic application of the gospel to real-life situations. If you were to come to me today and say, I got a real problem, uh, my boss hates me, and I'm afraid I'm going to get, fi I'm going to get fired. And I would say, well, you need to apply the gospel to that. What does the New Testament say about how the gospel relates to your relationship with your employer? Or what about some of you husbands and wives? What if uh, you ha a husband comes to me and he says, I'm having a real problem with my marriage. Where would I take him? I would take him to Ephesians 5, where Paul applies the gospel to marriage. And he says, this is what you must do as a believer because of the gospel is you must love your wife the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I mean, we live in a culture now that thinks that a great relationship is when I have get my way. When I get everything I want, when I get my way, that's a good relationship. No, that's a horrible relationship. A good relationship is when you love somebody so much you're willing to lay down your life for them. The way Christ laid down his life to the church. All the women said... Well, you're all scared to death, aren't you? <laughs> it's the truth. You see, that's what, that's what the epistles are about. They're about applying the gospel to all of life. And we need to preach the gospel to our own hearts 
and apply it to our lives, the things in our lives right now. Now, so they had lost their joy, but they also, in chapter 15, or chapter 5, verse 15, in Galatians, it says they lost their peace. He said, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. That's, man, that's, um, that's really strong language, isn't it? That somebody called that Christian cannibalism. You want to get eaten alive, join a church. <laughs> that's horrible. And he says the reason this was going on among the Galatians is they weren't walking in the Spirit. And the solution is found here in verse 16 that we just looked at. I say walk in the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Let me tell you what the flesh is. The flesh is not your, the meat on your bones. It's used that way in some contexts, but when Paul talks about the flesh, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the remnants of sin in your heart that show up as patterns of selfishness. You know what patterns of selfishness are? Th those are the idols of the heart. That's when I choose to do that which will please me. I set myself up on a false throne and I rule. That's the flesh. And so the flesh is always in opposition to God. In uh, Ezekiel 14, when, uh, if you remember, Ezekiel was a, a, um, was a prophet that went down into Babylonian captivity with the people of God. So here's the pr a prophet Ezekiel in Babylon during the captivity. And while he's there in Ezekiel 14, I won't turn there, but what's happened is the leaders of Israel, some of the leaders come to Ezekiel and they want to ask him a question. And so they sit down to ask him a question, and, and God speaks to Ezekiel. And he's going to tell him about these guys. Isn't that scary? What if you were to come to somebody, a pastor, somebody, and say, I, I need to talk to you, and God speaks to them and tells them the truth about what's going on in your heart? <laughs> and so God speaks to me and says, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. They have put their stumbling blocks, that is their idolatry, right before their eyes. And I have nothing to say to them except to abandon your idols. In other words, he's not going to give answers to their questions because their questions are coming out of a heart that is being dominated by the flesh, by these patterns of selfishness rather than the worship of the true and living God. So he tells them to get the idols out of their hearts and to worship one God, the one and true and living God. Now, walking in the Spirit is, is walking, ordering all of your life around the things of the Spirit and what the Spirit supplies. Now, the Bible says, for example, you're to love one another in this body of believers. You're to love one another the way Christ loved you. Well, that's, a, that's an impossible task. You can't do it. And you might say, I mean, boy, that's, you're sure pessimistic. Well, I know you can't. I can't either. To, for me to love you the way Christ loved you, be willing to lay down my life for you, put my needs in the back burner completely and say, I, I want to I give myself to you the way Christ gave himself for us. But here's what happens with these kind of commands is that it turns us to Christ. And we turn to Christ and we see what Christ has done and we begin to see the reality and the truth of what he is, the way he's actually loved us. And it's because he has loved us that we are able to flee to him and to trust him to produce in our hearts and the spirit of God to produce in our hearts where we can't produce at all. And so the so spirit can surprise you about yourself. You know that? The spirit can surprise you about what he can do in your life. I was having lunch with a guy the other day 
uh, that I used to work with. I was in ministry with him for 12 years. And uh, we had a parting of the ways, and it was kind of rough and tough, and I left, and we started a church, and, um, and I hadn't, I hadn't, I've had conversations with him. There was no hard feelings. I had really forgotten about all the details, but he says to me at the meal, he says to me, Frank, there was another guy there too that had no part in it, but he says to me, did I ever ask your forgiveness for the way we handled that situation back in, this was back in the late 90s. It totally caught me off guard. I hadn't thought of that in years. It was very traumatic. It was probably, at the time, I thought it was the biggest trial I'd ever gone through. And he says to me, Had I, have I ever asked you your forgiveness? And I said, well, uh, no. But I hadn't even thought about that. And he said, will you forgive me? And I said, absolutely. But I, you need to know that that was one of the best things that ever happened to me because God humbled me and he turned me and changed me and affected me in such a deep and profound ways. So I don't, I've been walking around saying, I don't know if that guy's ever gonna ask me to forgive him. <laughs> you see, the spirit of God though did something that totally surprised me because he didn't have to ever acknowledge that they had done anything wrong to me, that they had, uh, in fact, I could have argued, ah, you did the right thing, you know. But I just love the fact that the spirit of God worked in his heart and he'll do that to you. He'll do that to you. The Spirit of God will work in your heart. Now, I want to give you, show you an illustration of what it means to walk in the Spirit. I like this illustration right here. And that is, this is a couple of pictures, three pictures here, of sighted ski instructors teaching blind skiers. Maybe you've seen this before. Uh, you might have seen some special on TV or go on YouTube, and you can see some of these, these videos where blind people can learn to ski and they are trained by sighted skiers, ski instructors. So in the first picture, you can see this guy. That's how I think, I, if I ever did ski, that's probably what I'd want to do is two guys who know how to ski holding a bar, and you just hang on to this bar, and they take you where you're supposed to go. High tactile uh, touch uh, leading them. They're leading him. So he's, he's kind of skiing in the instructors. Then the next one, number two, is when this is a, a lady instructor in the back, and she's holding out this bar, and, he's, and the blind skier's hanging on to it, and she's talking to him. She's telling him when to turn and wh what's coming up next, and so she, he is following her instructions. The third is, this is the third stage, when they're both, there's no touch. They're close, and there is communication. Now, this is like walking in the Spirit. And the two important ingredients is, are those two things, close proximity and clear communication. Now, get, let's think about this a second. The Holy Spirit must be close, and he must clearly communicate with you in order for you to walk in the Spirit. Well, is that true? You may think, well, man, he hasn't talked to me lately. Oh, yes, he has. When was the last time you opened the book? When was the last time you heard the word preached? The Spirit speaking to you. He's speaking to you. Read the book of Revelation. Every letter in there to every church, it was the Spirit speaking to the churches. He's speaking to you all the time. But he also nudges you. Just like these guys do. They were talking to the blind skier, but they're also nudging them and kind of pushing him this way or that way. And you've been nudged by the Spirit. You know how that is. The Spirit is present in you. He's not somewhere else. He is everywhere because he's omnipresent, but 
it isn't, he's not absent from you. He is with you. He is in you. Jesus said to his disciples, the Spirit has been with you, para, alongside of you, because they were watching the Holy Spirit work in Jesus. They were seeing the powerful manifestation of the Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus. But he says, he will be in you. And that's why you're going to do greater works than I've done. The Holy Spirit is living in you, so there's close proximity. The Holy Spirit has spoken, and he continues to speak through his word, and it continues to resonate with your heart. There's reverberations. It's like the inflow of electricity into your heart when the Spirit of God is speaking to you. And so we need to respond to the Spirit. We need to walk in response to the Holy Spirit. Now, it's a learning process, just like that. It's a learning process. You have to come to know how to walk in the Spirit. If you, maybe some of you are skiers. I'm not a skier, so I wouldn't know, but uh, it's like riding motorcycles. I, I used to ride bikes all the time when I was younger, uh, and then about, I don't know, 10 years ago, I started riding again. I started riding a street bike, and I love it, but it took me a little while to figure things out. And it took a lot of writing to figure it out. It took a lot of writing where I got where I could actually go on long, you know, two-week rides. I had to learn how to do it. And it's the same way with you. Everything you do, whatever it is that in life that you love to do, you've done it so much you can, it has become natural to you. You need to learn how to walk in the Spirit. You need to learn how to listen to Him in His Word and actually come to the Word with that mentality. What does the Spirit have to say to you today? Even if you're following a reading plan, when you open the book, you should expect that God has sovereignly chosen this passage of Scripture for you today because He wants to speak to your heart. I, uh, I don't know if I, I, when you preach twice in a row, I can't remember what I said or didn't say to this group, but the Bible says that there's two ways that you can resist the Spirit, offend the Spirit. One is grieving the Spirit. The other is quenching the Spirit. Now, it's really fascinating, the context of both those. Grieving the Spirit in, in Ephesians 5, Ephesians 4.30, rather, it, grieving the Spirit is when you use your mouth, your sanctified mouth, you as a person indwelt by the Spirit, when you use your mouth to san- slander fellow believers, when you use your mouth to do destru- destructive speech towards others, either directly to them or about them, That's grieving the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, stop grieving the Spirit by whom you are sealed unto the day of redemption. That is all of you believers. And so you're speaking against somebody who's been sealed into the body of Christ. That's the first part. That's that's the one way we resist Spirit is by grieving Him and, and using our mouths as weapons against fellow believers. The other thing, though, is quenching the Spirit. And quenching the Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 5 is when I refuse to hear the Spirit speaking through fellow believers. You know, on the day of Pentecost, the, the Spirit was poured out, and it said that God says, I'm going to speak through not just a few, but all of my children, all of my people. He anointed you with the Spirit. 1 John 2 says you have the anointing, and you all know. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to give out new revelation. It means that you are a mouthpiece of God. And maybe you do this. You see a believer is in trouble. You know, you, you know what you should say to them, but you don't say it because you don't think it's, it's your place to say it. Yes, it is your place because you are fellow members of the body of Christ. 
So if you see a guy who's about to go over a cliff, then you should, you should use this, this opportunity for God to use you to speak truth into their lives. Now what you have to do is, what does the Word of God say? Now sometimes you're going to be wrong. You're going to go to somebody and say, you know, you shouldn't do that, you should do this. And they say, wait a minute, you don't understand this situation. Let me explain it to you. And you get informed. That's okay. But quenching the Spirit is when you refuse to receive the Word of God, the Word of the Spirit, through fellow believers. Now, the next thing is that we are to abide in the Son. So we're to walk in the Spirit, and we have to learn how to walk in the Spirit. But secondly, we are to, we are to abide in Christ. And the way that we abide in Christ is, is given to us here in John 15. In John 15, verse 4, he says... Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear. And he's using the analogy, the metaphor of a vine and branches. And so he says, the branches can't bear fruit unless they're abiding in the vine. Now, the word abide here means, let me give you dictionary, a lexical definition. Get this. It means to remain, to abide, to rest. And it's talking about our union with Christ demands a constant response of faith. Our relationship with Christ demands a constant response of faith. Let me share something with you. You know about the three enemies of the believer, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But did you know that those three enemies are, are over against the three persons of the Trinity? For example, the devil wants to undermine your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter chapter 5. It's like a roaring lion roaming about seeking whom he may devour. But he says, stand firm in your faith. Don't let him undermine your faith in Christ. Stand fast against him. The, the flesh is over against the spirit. The spirit lusts against the flesh. The flesh lusts against the spirit. Those are the motiv motivating uh, desires of our heart. And so the world, uh, the, rather, the flesh wants to produce these selfish desires. And then the world system is over against the Father. We are called to love the Father above all things. But the world system today, this afternoon... As you watch TV, it's going to pre present you numerous things to love instead of the Father, to value above what you value God as. You know, it's like it presents something that will give you what only God could give you, like peace and joy and love. And it'll actually tell you that some credit card or some trip or something else will give you what only God can give you. And so when it, we talk, when it talks about abiding in Christ, we have to resist Satan's attempt to get us to not live a life of continual faith and trusting of Jesus Christ. Now, in John 15, I just want to read these verses here. In John 15, beginning in verse 7, it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, whatever you desire. Now, your desires are a manifestation of your nature. Uh, that, sometimes that's hard on us t to think, I'm that kind of a person? Yes, uh, you are. <laughs> Whatever you desire, that's a reflection of your nature. Now, we're in the process of being changed. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, and you, you can ask whatever you wish, whatever you desire, and it will be done for you. That is an astounding promise. And a lot, it's amazing the ways that you can eliminate that verse from the Bible. It's meaning. But that's what it says, isn't it? I mean, I could read the Greek to you if you wanted. You know what it means? It means exactly what the English says. 
If you abide in Christ and Christ's words abide in you, ask whatever you desire and it will be given to you. Now what's going to happen is there's some things you might be desiring right now and you start abiding in Christ and his words abide in you and you won't want that thing anymore. You want something much better, much more glorious. But then get this, this really astounds me. He says, my father is glorified by this. Glorified by what? By you expressing your desires and Christ answering your prayer. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I grew up in the church. I grew up in a Christian family. And I kind of had this idea that prayer was to try to get God to do what he didn't want to do. Right? And, and so you would, uh, I, I had these thoughts of, I need to learn how to get on my knees and just pray for hours to talk God into doing what I want him to do so desperately. But here it says that God delights, he's glorified by your prayers being answered. The prayers that you have when you're abiding in Christ and his words are abiding in you. And why? Because that you may bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. An evidence that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. You could write this down in the back of your Bible. An evidence that you are a disciple of Christ as your prayers are being answered. And you might say, man, that's not fair. I ask for a whole lot of good things. They don't get done. Well, this verse says, if Christ is abiding in you, and you're, his words are abiding in you, and you're abiding in him, you can ask whatever you deeply desire, and he will, it will be done for you. And by this, the Father will be glorified. And you will prove to be the disciples of Jesus. Now, we could have a, a, a two-hour uh, testimony service here. I'll guarantee you there's people scattered throughout this place. If you get this thinking about it, the way that God has answered those prayers of yours when you were abiding in Christ and his words were abiding in you and the things that you begin to ask him, and he did, he surprised you. I, I, was, I, I have a, a couple of cousins that I prayed for for 45 years, more than that, really, but both of them came to faith in Christ. They're on two different sides of family, so they're not close. But I had witnessed to these guys over and over and over again. And they both had grown up in a Christian extended family. One of them got saved. Both of them got saved. One of them got saved when he got cancer, a really serious cancer. He almost died from the surgery. He lived another five years. But that shook him so deeply, he began to search for God, and God found him. And he came to faith, and his life changed. And he told me, he says, I don't even care about the cancer. This is the most blessed thing that's ever happened to me. I, my eyes were open. All of a sudden, I could see what I could never see before. I could see the gospel. He used to tell me, you know, I would really like to do it. I would really like to believe the gospel, but I know I can't do it. What he meant was, I can't live the Christian life. And I kept saying, I know you can't. I can't either. Guess what? I can't either. It's only as the Spirit of God, moment by moment, is empowering me to obey Christ and to fulfill his will. That's the only way. It's a, it's a moment by moment thing. You know, you don't, you don't get to a place where you can stop walking in the Spirit, abiding in Christ, and presenting yourself to the Father. This is going to go on through all the Christian life. You know, I've, you heard that story, I'm sure, Jay Adams talks about uh, a counseling situation where this couple came in, and they're really having a bad time. And, and she said to him, he never tells me he loves me. And the husband said, I told you once, and I, don't, I, still, I still do, and I don't need to say it again. Well, that guy was an idiot, right? He's a nutcase. You've got to be kidding me. Well, that's kind of how we are sometimes in the Christian life. I did that. I dedicated my life 50 years ago. 
You, you have got to live your life walking in the Spirit and abiding in Christ, settling down and being at home in Jesus. You have to experience the practical manifestation of Christ's love through abiding in Christ. That's what verses 7 and 8 says. You'll experience the love of Christ in your life. And you'll understand the nature of Christ's love for his own. In verse 9, it says his love is divine. He says, as the fathers love me, I have loved them. I love you. Isn't that amazing? He loves you the way the Father loved him. Now, God is love. God loves like no one else. And Jesus says, I have loved you the way the Father loved me. And then it's also a perfected love. He says, I have also loved you. He uses a tense there that means I've loved you completely. And in fact, in John 13, verse 1, it says, he loved, having loved his own, he loved them to the very end. He loved them to the point of self-sacrifice. He gave himself completely for them. And then you'll understand the obligation of, of, the, of Christ's love for his own. In verse 10, it says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The reason I hate sin in my life is because I know every time I sin, every time I'm disobedient to Christ, every time I don't obey his commandment, I'm not abiding in his love for me. If you tell your five-year-old or your seven-year-old, you do not play in the street. You understand that, young man? You don't ever walk beyond that sidewalk. You stay in the yard. Are you a legalist? No, you're a parent who loves its child. God has given us commandments because of his love for us. And when we abide in his commandments, we're abiding in his manifest love for us. And we will experience the joy of Christ's love for his own. In verse 11, it says, these things I have spoken to you so that you can be really miserable. I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. It's glorious. One last thing, and that is you must present yourself to the Father. This is Romans 6. I only got a minute, so I'm just going to tell you. Read Romans 6, and what you'll see is that the way God views you, your identity in God's eyes, who you are in God's eyes as a believer, you died with Christ, you were buried with Christ, you were raised with Christ. And that death was a death to sin, your old master. And the resurrection was your resurrection to God, who is now your Lord and master. And so he says, present yourself to the Father as those who have died to sin and have been made alive to God. And now get this. This word here, present yourself, parahistomy, it means to present or bring yourself into his presence. Be present with him. Uh, Psalm 43 says he is an uh, ever-present help in time of need. An ever-present help in time of need. He, in, in fact, in my margin of my Bible, the New American Standard translates it, he is a, an abundantly available help. He's available. And so when we present ourselves to him, we are presenting ourselves to the one. We're standing before him as a servant and offer to him our service. But then in chapter 12, it says we present ourselves to him and offer him worship. So the way you stand before him, the way you present yourself to him is through worship and, and saying, I'm here to serve you, Father. I'm your servant. Whatever you want me, whatever you, however you want to use me, I want to be used by you. I got to stop there. And uh, I want, I want, what I want to happen is I want these things to stick in your mind and go all the way down to your heart. I really mean it. I, investigate it more. Read the passages. Think about it. Walk in the Spirit. Abide in the Son and present yourself to the Father. And it will produce glorious fruit. I promise. I promise.
Let's pray. Father, we are a uh, broken and needy people. There's times in the Christian life we feel like total failures. Like all we do is go through the motions, but there's no real deep, profound work of the Spirit in us. We don't see the effects. We don't see the fruit. And, and God, sometimes we feel so far from you. I pray, Lord, we would draw near by walking in the Spirit, abiding in Christ, and presenting ourselves to you as those who are alive from the dead. We are your servants and your worshipers. You said that the church is a kingly priesthood, that we have access to your presence to worship you, and we can even lead others in worship. And so, Father, I pray that this truth, these truths would penetrate our hearts and shape our lives for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.